This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking graduate outcomes, big changes afoot in Australia, a new report on PhDs, and more. It's all coming up. Of all the countries in the world, I don't think there's any country that has more similarities in higher education with the UK, particularly England, uh, than Australia. Um, and sometimes what happens in Australia goes on to happen here. Um, so it's really important that we look closely at this. But it's also part of a debate they've been having for a very long time in Australia about what exactly you should take into account. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, recording from home in lockdown. And joining me to help us hold back the rising tide of higher education policy this week, we have three guests in Cambridge. It's Ellen Wilson, Vice President of Higher Education Services at Pearson. Ellen, your highlight of the week, please. Well, you only have to look outside, really. The the weather and managing to um, blow up my children's paddling pool without bursting a hole in it this week, which uh, was a a big achievement. Um, And also looking forward to the Glastonbury weekend. (laughs) Um, You you and parents up and down the country. (laughs) In North London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie McVitie. Your hired of the week, please, Debbie. Um, My highlight came... Uh, just five minutes ago, um, when it turns out that my dad has discovered the new app that can let you look at, uh, understand what you would look like if you were a different gender and has just sent himself a picture of, just sent me a picture of himself as a woman. And basically, it just looks like a picture of me in 30 years time. And in Buckinghamshire, we have Nick Hillman, director of HEPI. Nick, your highlight of the week, please. Yes, well, my, my personal highlight of the week has been continuing to explore the beautiful countryside near where I live. And I found the most amazing field of, of red poppies, uh, which apparently is a, is a bad thing, because apparently it means the main crop has failed. But it looked stunningly beautiful. Right. We start the week with the ongoing release of HESA's graduate outcome statistics. Ellen, what stood out for you in all of this? Yeah, so it's been it's been um, really interesting to see. As you say, it's a new new survey, not yet complete. The data's being being released, and I know we can't necessarily make comparisons to previous surveys like like the Delhi, but nonetheless, I think the points that have stood out for me is that it's another source of valuable information at the moment, shining a light on important issues around really around value and inclusion. So, kind of kind of three of the key headlines from it that stood out to me were first of all that men earning ten percent more than uh, women fifteen months after graduating. I was surprised, actually, and quite disheartened that it seems to show that the gap starts at, at graduate level. I think this needs delving into further. You know, what, why is it are women simply choosing to do jobs that are lower paid than men? If so, why? Are they actually getting paid less for doing the same? And, and it kind of puts paid to the, the argument before, which was more around, you know, the gender pay gap due to women having career breaks. Um, but this data doesn't seem to really support this. So I think it's an important one to look at. And I think it probably goes back to looking at the need to do more to smash career stereotypes even earlier in school as well. So I think it might be to do with, you know, the range of, of degrees uh, women and men choose to study. So, so, so that one and, and the other two 
points for me also again um, the graduate outcomes for black students only half of black university graduates were in full-time employment more than a year after they left I think compared to 60% of white students and only 3% of white graduates were unemployed 15 months after finishing um, whereas twice as many black graduates were at 6%. And then, and lastly, I think the really interesting angle on this um, survey is, is the more contextual questions included and looking about where the graduates find their current activity meaningful um, and looking at things around progress to future goals. And I, th I believe personal well-being, although I don't think that the data on well-being is um, released yet. But I thought there have been some good points made in um, on uh, the analysis of this and looking at the article, I think David Kernan's article on, on Wonky did raise some interesting questions around, you know, personal fulfillment versus salary, what we value as a society. And I, I think it's interesting because actually the um, the occupational classifications as well being used, I think, in the survey, putting occupations into high-skilled, medium-skilled, low-skilled is sometimes un unhelpful and you know as a country we need to look at so if 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 carers are you know in the low skilled bracket or administrative roles um medium skilled i reckon there are a lot of pas out there that are, could give their managers a run for their money so it's just how we classify um classify roles and i guess just lastly i'd say it was more p positive actually than i was expecting at this point just in terms of eight i think it was 86 percent of graduates reported that um their current activity was meaningful 72 percent were using what they'd learned of their studies in their current activity, which contrasts with what we often hear from the employer view, saying that graduates don't have the skill sets they're looking for. Um, but according to these statistics, you know, it's not stopping them from employing them. But I do say that against this backdrop of obviously where we're at the moment in a pandemic and the picture is, of course, far much bleaker for, for recent graduates to come. How well, Nick, Nick, how well do you think, um, the, the kind of the context of, of some of these, these, some of these variations are understood by prospective students when you kind of feed this kind of data into thinking about, you know, where you're going to go? Well, I, I think it matters to some students and matters much less to others. I mean, we do know that most people who go to higher education do have a career. Uh, insight. You know, they're going to university because they want to get a fulfilling career at the end. But many others go just because they love, you know, they love their subject. Um, and it is a fascinating data set. Um, uh, you know, some of the things that stood out for me were some other challenges around disabled students and also the cliff edge between getting a first or a two one and a lower class of degree and what that can mean for employment. Um, I was amused by the uh, piece in one of the newspapers uh, looking at Gavin Williamson's alma mater and uh, trying to say that uh, uh, the unemployment rate from the University of Bradford was was higher than uh, 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 Russell Group universities, uh, ignoring, of course, um, uh, the different type of uh, students with different backgrounds who go to those institutions. But of course, uh, I, I actually think it showed the opposite. You know, the fact that uh, Gavin Williamson's become the Secretary of State in the Cabinet, uh, having been uh, uh, to the University of Bradford, actually reflects rather well on the, on the University of Bradford. Um, I mean, uh, the other thing I would say, because I don't think it's all positive. I mean, it's great that Heese has put this information in the public domain. It's great that, uh, as Charlie Ball said on Wonky, we have a, a really good baseline um, by which we can measure later waves of the data affected by the pandemic against. Um, but I mean, we, ra we ran a piece by... Um, some people at the University of Portsmouth who were saying that the data set massively um, uh, underestimated, sorry, overestimated the proportion of their graduates who are unemployed. They said 20% of their graduates who, who who look unemployed in the data set were actually registered as full-time postgraduate students at the University of Portsmouth. So I think there are some technical questions we need to go on asking, um, asking about the data because this data set really, really matters because government policy 
could be set according to it in the future. I mean, you know, that is an understatement of the century. I mean, this it seems to me to this the oral government policy over the last few years has been heading towards that kind of you know outcomes based uh, outcomes based framework for for you know the kind of the economic model underpinning the sector. I mean, we're going to talk about Australia uh, a bit later, but that's you know it looks like they're just kind of a couple of steps further down the line. I mean, Debbie, do you think do you see this as as becoming more important? I think what well, I suppose what becomes interesting is is about where this uh, data gets situated in the um, you know in the in the panoply of, of of data options. So the government's got Leo, which gives the salary data, um, and now we've got graduate outcomes. They're not directly comparable, but I suppose there could be an element of kind of triangulation to try and understand the kind of I guess nuance and richness of of the of the postgraduate experience, if you can call it that. Um, so yes, I think you know, it, 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 it is almost certain that you know over time we will see the graduate outcomes feature in in things like TEF because it is the replacement for Delhi, and Delhi was in TEF. Um, so yes, I think you know it's 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 very much part of that picture. Um, and I guess what we can what we what we need to sort of hope is that it is done with the requisite level of kind of nuance and thought. So um, Nick mentioned kind of demographics as being a, a key influencer of graduate outcomes, and of course Delhi was very robustly benchmarked to take account of that, um, so that universities could by and large assess their performance against other universities with similar demographic profiles. And of course, demographic profile isn't the only influencer, but um, you know, it's 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 a very significant one. So uh, you know, if if we're if we're able, to, you know, as as as, a, as as the data kind of series builds up and, and and as we're able to kind of understand what that benchmarking would look like, then yeah, it'll 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 be very it'll be very much a feature of um, of policy for years to come, I imagine. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm Levi Pay. I'm director of the training and consultancy company Plinth House, which works with universities to enhance the way we support students and enhance the way we respond to some of the challenges that we're seeing around student mental health. The Government, OFS and the Higher Education Funding Council for Wales recently announced a £3 million investment in the development of a brand new platform called uh, Student Space, which it's intended will exist from July to December to support student mental health during this pandemic. In my article for Wonky, I set out some of my main concerns about this initiative, uh, particularly linked to the very short lead time that we have to produce this uh, new platform, but also around duplication. There are already a lot of existing self-help resources uh, for students to use in this area of student mental health, some of which universities have spent a lot of time and money on producing and purchasing. Um, but I have a particular concern as well around the management of clinical risk. Whenever I hear that there's a new service or a new platform in town that's purporting to deliver uh, therapeutic interventions directly to students, my heckles go up slightly like they do on the back of our border collie when she spies next door's cat in the yard because I start to think, hold on, if I was a director of student services now, I would be looking at this emerging new platform and thinking, but how does that fit with our offer and what we do? And how will it respond to the high-risk students? What if a student discloses a high level of risk on this new platform? How will student space communicate that effectively with university support services, with local NHS teams, and so on? Uh, the other key point I make in the article relates to the project that I would like to see in an ideal world. And it's actually a project that's probably a lot smaller and a lot less expensive than the project they just announced. I would love to see a project which gave a very clear national steer to universities on what an effective and efficient 
university counselling service should look like today. So how can we make sure that we remodel our counselling teams within universities so that they are better able to respond to the very high levels of demand that we're seeing from students for mental health support and respond to the much higher levels of risk that students are now presenting with. Right, in a slightly different format, this, I'm going to ask Debbie to help us gently skim over some of the shallower waters, the uh, the koi pond of HE policy, if you will. Um, so Debbie, tell us what you saw bubble to the surface this week. Okay, well, uh, first thing that caught my eye this week was the announcement that EU students or students coming to study in the UK from the EU countries will not be eligible for student loan finance um, in for the from from the academic year 21-2022, so not the coming academic year, but the year after. And although I think this is widely expected, um, and certainly Nick's mentioned in 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 his statement that um, it would sort of be rather unreasonable once we've left the EU to to um, for EU students to be eligible for home fees and a sort of differential basis from from international students. I think there may also be some people who were rather disappointed and were holding out hope that something could have been negotiated as part of our exit deal. Yeah, it's a sort of emotional. It's a sort of emotional moment for the sector, isn't it? It's a, the Brexit, fi- you know, the reality, the cold hard reality of Brexit has finally, finally arrived. It's pretty sad. Yeah, I think I think it's probably uh, really bringing home, and, and and I mean we've se- we've seen some evidence of that um, in the uh, firm acceptance statistics that UCAS released there uh, just this morning, um, which is an unusual thing for UCAS to do uh, to to release um, in- information about firm acceptances. And though the overall picture is actually quite positive. Um, in that there's more firm, you know, more students holding firm firm, firm offers uh, than than this time last year, um, and and particularly more from uh, the international non-EU um, cohort. The EU group has declined by six by six percentage by six percent, and which may be a sort of sign of things to come. Uh, the other big news potentially worth noting is is that Michael Barber, the chair of the Office for Students, has announced that he will be stepping down from next year, having served his, his first term uh, as chair, and he will not be seeking a second term, and, uh, and he will be sort of mo- moving on to, to bright, brighter and better things. The, the press release made me, made me slightly chuckle. It's sort of, he's moving into the cloud. He's moving into sort of... Another plane of digital digital existence. Is what <laughs> yes, when when you yeah the first time you read it, 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 it sort of sounds like Michael Barber himself is 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 is, is, is taking on a, is, is gone fully digital and is you know he will only be present in holographic form. Actually, what that's referring to is the OFS. Uh, one of the uh, Gavin Williamson has asked that OFS before 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 Michael Barber departs his chair, which will be in in March uh, twenty one. So it's still quite a way to go. That OFS undertake an investigation of uh, how universities could enhance the quality of their digital offering. Um, and uh, how the sector could be more innovative in in, in developing digital and online provision. So, although yes, it, the implication is, is that Michael Barber is is was going fully digital. Actually, I think that they, they're t- talking about online learning. <laughs> it remains the original self-facilitating media node. <laughs> and, and there's, there's a new there's a new acronym. Oh yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. Um, we're all we're all throwing shapes. Um, going forward, and I think we, we might we might pick this up a little bit later when we talk about um, the situation in Australia. But um, there's a, there's a new campaign launched this week, which we covered in our Monday, which um, it, it involves you know lots and lots of illustrious organisations, particularly the British Academy, but but you know others as well. And, and David Willits is involved, um, and it's it's thinking about how we can articulate better the importance of social sciences, arts, and humanities. And they've come up with this acronym SHAPE, which stands for uh, if I can <laughs> if, I, if I get this right, social sciences, humanities, and arts for people and the economy. Um, so it's it's about sort of saying these these subjects are, are not you know should not be undervalued. They, they need to be understood as, as really contributing to uh, what makes us human and understanding ourselves as human beings. 
things. I mean, many subjects contribute positively to the economy, but these are the subjects that, you know, arguably make life worth living. Um, and so that campaign is, I think, a, a response to some of the narratives about low value subjects and, uh, and, and attempt to kind of preempt perhaps some of the some of the policies that may be emerging in the next six months in that space. Tends to be a bit of cynicism I saw on the social. Well, I think because I suppose the, the idea that just by putting an acronym in place, you know, sort of saying, ah, oh, well, STEM has an acronym and that's why they're so successful at, at you know, um, at, um, at winning the attention of, of policymakers. I don't think that's really what's going on. Um, uh, you know, and that what you know what is just needed is, is a kind of counter acronym, and and so I think that's where the cynicism is coming from. Because if that were the whole scope of the campaign, that would be rather silly. But it, you know, but it is very much more than that, and it's something that you know I think is understood that's going to be developing and um, you know emerging over, over over a period of months and years. So um, it really is not just about the acronym, and, and I think it's worth watching that space to see what happens more next. Now, the Australian government has announced widespread reform to the higher education system down under. Debbie, talk us through it. Right. So not being uh, the most expert in higher education in Australia, um, I would absolutely refer readers to an excellent blog on this by Ant Bagshaw, formerly of this parish who who is now um, based in Australia. But uh, to summarise, so the Australian government has announced uh, what they're calling a Jobs Ready Graduates package. Um, And this is a a follow up to an announcement made quite recently, which which, uh, in which the government uh, announced that they're aspiring to make Australia a world leader in micro credentials. So this is a a kind of pivot, I guess, in in the kind of uh, thrust of of higher education policy in Australia, partly prompted by COVID-19, I think, but partly sort of as a uh, a part of larger forces. Um, in Australia, they have an income contingent loan system for students, um, and the balance of what students pay and what government pay is is set uh, according to something similar to the the old kind of hefty funding bands. So some subjects attract a certain amount of government funding and a certain amount of student contribution, depending on things like the cost of the subject. And what the government's essentially done is reorganise those funding bands, um, and with the stated intention of better reflecting the cost of delivery. Um, but particularly controversially, to incentivise students into specific courses. So what they've done is they've reduced the student contribution in subjects like science, health, engineering, education and nursing. Um, and they have increased the student contributions for new students in who are studying arts, uh, society and culture, law, creative arts and communications and those, those sorts of subjects. So it's a very clear signal, I think, from the Australian government about which sorts of subjects are valued and which sorts of subjects they'd like to see more students taking. Um, a key kind of sting in the tail for universities is that the total funding envelope per university is, is capped. So universities are getting no more additional funding um, and they can't sort of expand uh, you know, particular courses to kind of... To, 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 to go beyond that envelope, but they can they can reorganise their courses, you know, for undergraduate, postgraduate, and in the different subject banding areas within that funding envelope. Um, it's also worth noting Australia, like the UK, is, is expecting demographic growth in the, in the 18 to 19 year old cohort, and uh, part of this package is about planning for uh, nearly 40,000 extra students in the next couple of years. But again, with no more money, so it's about um, it's it's sort of suggested that. The kind of uh, a slight increase in student contributions will basically kind of account for the account for those extra numbers and the, the funding. So universities are very much being asked to do more with less, really, in, in the kind of uh, as part of a as part of this uh, this, this package. Um, and and there's, and there's also some efforts to improve participation in in the regions of Australia, the, the more rural regions, and, and support Indigenous populations to access university. So if if you're thinking that all of this very much is the flavour of of auger, um, you'd be absolutely right. And I think this sort of tells us something about uh, the way that education policy trends don't 
are, are not always just specific to one country. You might see different different in lo- local flavors of implementation. But this the shift to kind of I guess to training, to 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 emphasizing job readiness, to courses that are of high value to the economy, mm-hmm. um, and to asking universities to be as efficient as possible um, within a, a, a sort of fixed funding envelope. I think we're going to see some of that um, in our own context very shortly, and we'll all be looking closely at Australia to <laughs> to see how all this pans out. The other thing I question in other people's minds, of course, is will it actually incentivize students to make different choices? Um, and I think many people will be quite sceptical because, of course, if you're a student, if, if you're the sort of student who wants to be a, you know, an artist, you're probably not going to then decide to be an engineer instead on the basis of the cost of your degree. So I, I don't know whether students in general will, will have a real problem with this model. Yeah, well, I, I think Debbie makes a really important point there. But if you have an income contingent loan uh, and if your choice of course is restricted both by your interests and also your school leaving uh, exams, what that was subjects they're in and how well you did in them. Um, you know, you don't, there's not quite as much student choices as sometimes policymakers, um, pretend. I mean, I'm really glad that you're covering this story on the wonky show today because of all the countries in the world, I don't think there's any country that has more similarities in higher education with the UK and particularly England, uh, than Australia. Um, and sometimes what happens in Australia goes on to happen here. Um, so it's really important that we look closely at this, but it's also part of a debate they've been having for a very long time in Australia about what exactly you should take into account when you set differential fees. Because sometimes people think, you know, you can just move from a fixed fee system to a differential fee system. And some people think we in the, we in England should, should do that. And, and indeed in the other parts of the UK. Um, but there's been a massive debate for years in Australia as to whether what matters is the cost of the provision, the cost of, of the teaching and the learning, um, whether it's the labour market outcomes that we were talking about before that matters, whether it's political priorities that matter. Um, and when we looked at uh, uh, this in relation to the UK, we found that almost everybody here who's argued for differential fees has actually meant something very different by it. Some people want, you know, lower fees for, for things like medicine. Some people want higher fees for things like medicine because they cost more to teach. Some people want lower fees for students from tougher backgrounds. Um, some people want higher fees for things like history because uh, they think it has less social value, though I, I don't as a history graduate. Um, and uh, we also found when we did some polling on differential fees that two thirds of uh, students uh, are opposed to the idea. Um, and I think it's, it also is intriguing that both the Deering report and the Auger report actually came out against um, having uh, uh, fixed different fee caps for different subjects. So, so, so I think it, you know, there will be people who look at the Australian example. Uh, you can find lots of um, right-wing commentators on Twitter who want uh, to send different signals about different courses here, and they'll look at Australia and think there's a lesson there. But I'm not completely sure there is a lesson there for us. I don't think it would massively affect student choice. I think it puts fee levels into constant political play, um, and it's not absolutely clear. Uh, uh, as I say, when, when serious reviews have looked at the question, they've nearly always come out against it. The Brown report did like floating fee levels, but most of the other reports have been against them. Alan, oh, oh. from what from what Debbie is talking about uh, about this policy, um, do, do you think it re- it reflects what what you know in your work uh, you've done about um, the global trends of student demand? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> listening to to, to Debbie and, and, and Nick, what you were saying, I think it is you know it's really important that we look globally and we look at what's going on. And I think you're absolutely right about in between. Um, Australia and um, England in particular and I think if we look more more globally some of the some of the elements of this I think do 
um, compare to what we've seen in terms of, if indeed it does do this, um, the kind of drive for more flexible learning, for more, this big emphasis on the micro credentials. I mean, the interesting thing about the, the Australian fee structure model as well around the fees being at unit level, um, <clears throat> I noticed that they were, and we talked a lot about yeah, looking at in our global studies, the need for a more flexible, continuous learning kind of funding model as learning will need to be much more lifelong. Um, I, I mean, I wondered, I, I saw in some of the commentary, I think um, the Australian government government was saying that you know this notion of it being at unit level and these the idea of being able to pick different units should encourage more diversity um if that actually led to more kind of interdisciplinary degrees i think that's something that again has been talked of about being you know much needed um but i think the i think and also if the ability to credit transfer um, is easier. It does raise those kind of questions where definitely from a learner and a student demand, it's not just about the flexible learning in terms of the delivery mode. And we've seen a lot about that in light of COVID-19 around online or blended, but it's actually then about the qualification type or the, the length. But I think crucially, if this is all about the policy, government policy on measuring degree quality by employment outcomes, then it's all down to what are those qualification types? What are the credentials that are recognised um, that that's the challenge with short courses as well. And so much what what actually then is you know recognised with employers, and we know that a degree actually still holds a lot of value. So I think it does, yeah, draw on some interesting points. I think overall for me, it kind of raises similar to our discussion around the, the graduate outcome survey. That that whole question around you know if government policy is really about this, you know, the emphasis on measuring degree degree quality by employment outcomes. Um, and that, you know, what's the role of higher education? Is it just for preparing students for a job or not? But even if, if we're saying that it was that, well, the qualification you get is one part of that overall process of actually getting a job. And I think there are other angles in the recruitment process as well that studies and, and have shown in our, our, you know, global learner survey that we did as well, that there are lots of factors, obviously, on that, that influence um, graduates getting a job. Skills and knowledge from universities one, but then things like the interview process is still really dominant. Personality, the, the culture, um, fit. So it's not just good enough to get a degree. And I think part of the debate then needs to be looking at what else could or should universities, you know, be, be doing? Should there be more on the work experience, for example, um, and extracurricular? So I think it raises lots of interesting questions, but what it actually translates into, I think, remains to be seen. We've been promised, uh, Debbie, we've been promised action on um, low value courses now by several universities ministers, uh, but they've never really said what, what exactly they're, they're going to do. It seems to me, though, that the, these kind of tools are the, are the sorts of things that they're going to be looking at, right? Well, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, picking up on Ellen's point about the kind of the, the, the interdisciplinarity and, and the kind of greater use of short courses and that sort of thing. In some ways, okay, so even if you could pull together an agenda that was able to identify a low value course on the basis of it being in one subject area in one university, um, and having a sufficiently kind of robust basket of data attached to it. So, for example, you were able to demonstrate that not only did students have a horrible time, but then they subsequently went on, to, you know, to not get any decent jobs. You know, if the, if those if those courses existed, you'd you know, I think it would be quite hard to argue that the, the and universities were just kind of letting letting it happen. It would actually genuinely be genuinely hard to argue that the government shouldn't make some kind of intervention. I think, as you say, you know, it, there's there's very, really very little evidence that, that 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 is true. There are some courses that have worse employment outcomes than others based on the data that we gather. That's not the same thing as, as, as sort of saying that those courses are essentially low value. So, you know, there's always a caveat. But also, I mean, but I think Ellen's point is really important here. There's, there's a wider trend here. 
you know, clearly there's going to be ongoing demand for, you know, the traditional three-year undergraduate model and, you know, and, and all the signs point that way. But, uh, you know, increasingly, you know, if you think, if you're looking at global education trends, you're talking about, pe- people are talking about, you know, the jobs of the future, about the need for people to be kind of broad, you know, you know, have a, have a broad range of kind of intellectual competencies and um, uh, the, you know, of the need to be kind of immersed in professional environments as, as, as part, of the, a part of the degree. So that, that the trend is away from a fixed thing called a course. And so the idea that, you know, and, and so, so in many ways, not only is this kind of low value courses uh, agenda quite sort of incoherent, even within the kind of confines of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the sort of conservative idea of what a course is, I think in, in many ways it rather goes against the grain of what the future of higher education is going to look like. Um, so it really, I think, needs an awful lot more thought if the government is not going to sort of, I guess, trip over itself and trip over its own kind of uh, hope to build, you know, a, sort of, uh, you know, a model, model of, of post-compulsory education that's fit for the 21st century. The, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And, and, and I just want to return to one thing that Debbie mentioned in her introduction about Australia, which is these extra places that are part of the package to reflect demography. Uh, and of course, there's, there's a couple of ways to um, work against what politicians might regard as low-value courses. One is to attack the low-value courses, and the other is to make sure any extra places go uh, to the, the places that you don't think are low-value, the ones you like more. Um, and of course, we're seeing a bit of that uh, here in the UK with these extra student numbers that are being injected in the system, uh, despite the new student number gap. And it flags a bigger issue, which is Australia until very recently, had a demand-driven system where effectively the funding followed the students. Uh, England, until uh, the 2020 academic year, also had no student number controls and everything followed the students. And both uh, England and Australia are, are moving in a sort of more controlling direction. So any extra places... Uh, uh, you know, are, are part of a wider set of government decisions. And I, I personally regret that. I prefer a choice. I prefer a system where students have lots of choice, but, you know, they are given the information about which courses lead to good outcomes and which lead to more challenging outcomes. But it's up to them what they study and where they study. Um, uh, and I think it's regrettable that both Australia and England are moving in a more controlling direction. Now, Wonky's David Kernan has been diving into new Leo data just out this week. So what could be better on the hottest day of the year than the Leo data for the 2017-18 tax year? Well, lots of things. A cold beer, a swim in the sea, a walk in a park. But we'll take what we can get. So this is broadly similar to all of the other Leo releases. We've got data on salary for one, three and five years after graduation. As with all of these things, we know with Leo there is a set number of significant variables that need to be controlled for, and we don't get them. So we are split by subject, by provider, and by sex. We don't get anything on prior attainment, although they've shoehorned the polar stuff in by institution for that particular year. It's not linked to the graduate in question. And we don't get anything on current region by subject. We have got Uh, the current region stuff the weighted median only by provider and I have then a plot of that on the site Uh, there's no real surprises in terms of what the data shows us the interest really with Leo I would say is what does it mean post COVID-19 it is it is unlikely that the job market for graduates or anybody else will go back to how it was in the 2017-18 tax year there's already been reasonable questions about how much that kind of historic data can tell us about the likely earnings trajectory of future graduates. And we now get a salary question in graduate outcomes, which is going to be more likely 
to give us an indication of what graduates are actually earning. Remember, with Leo, we just get a figure for the total year. It doesn't take into account mode of employment or the amount of months in a year that a graduate is employed. So, same old stuff. We saw Leo used for the first time in policy this week. It's being used to justify the choice of subjects for the additional student numbers in England. It's still not the kind of data you'd want to base a policy on, and if it is going to be used as such in future, we need to be clear that we understand its limitations and we need to push back on these limitations as people are making unreasonable claims based on the data. Finally, it's the latest HEPI report on the experience of PhD students, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Nick with us this week to talk to tell us all about it. Nick, um, talk us through your, your new report. Well, thank you. Um, it's, it, it's kind of you to say so, though, of course, all the credit must go to the author, Bethan Cornell, who's, who, who's a PhD student herself uh, in physics at King's College London. Um, and she's been uh, doing an internship with uh, HEPI. And her, her report uh, fills a hole, uh, I think, particularly in terms of HEPI's own output, by focusing specifically on the PhD student experience. We and others have done lots of work on the undergraduate student experience, but much less work on the PhD student experience. But it, the PhD student experience really matters. First of all, there's tens of thousands of PhD students, uh, around 100,000 PhD students at any one time. Uh, secondly, they are the pipeline of talent, both for our own sector, uh, but also for research uh, conducted by companies, by charities, by government. Um, so so it, really, it really matters. And uh, Bethan's used uh, two um, very powerful data sets from uh, the Wellcome uh, Trust and uh, Nature uh, to, to drill down into the student experience for PhD students. And, and some of the numbers are quite worrying. So PhD students, a lot of them work very unhealthy numbers of hours, 13% to over 60 hours uh, a week. Um, if you divide the typical stipend that a PhD student receives by the uh, average number of hours they work, you get less uh, than the minimum wage. Um, 37% have sought help for anxiety or depression. Uh, about half say they've seen, witnessed bullying, and about a quarter say they've been bullied them, themselves. Um, so, and, and I think the overarching message from the report is that PhD students fit a little bit uncomfortably in the Venn diagram between staff on the one side and students on the other. They're treated more like staff in many respects, things like workload, um, but they're treated more like students in the fact that they don't, you know, have a salary. Um, and Bethan's report ends with a set of really sensible policy recommendations, I think, on, on being clearer about the number of hours they should be working, better career support, maybe giving them access to a very basic pension, not, nothing like the USS, just a basic uh, 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 retirement plan, uh, better mentoring, um, making it easier for them to speak out when they see things going wrong, uh, including uh, 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 having their funders support impartial investigations um, when uh, necessary. Um, and people who want to hear firsthand from the author, we've got up uh, on the HEPI website a presentation by Bethan uh, summarising uh, uh, her conclusions. And and I would like, as I would like with all HEPI reports, this not to be the final word. I would like this to be the start of a conversation and debate that is louder and more detailed than we've had in the past about what PhD students should expect uh, and how they should be treated. Debbie, you've been reviewing this work on, on Wonky uh, this week. What, what what jumped out at you? Well, yeah, I mean, my, my piece for the site this morning um, 
it basically explores this idea of the experience um, because I think a lot of a lot of this report rang rang true for me um, as a you know, and, and I should caveat that I did my, my PhD um, more than ten years ago now painful but true um, so you know and, and I'm I'm really conscious that universities have sort of do enormous amounts you know and will have done enormous amounts and you know there's lot there's lots going on just just as I was kind of graduating and and more will have happened since to address some of these concerns but we do you know if if you triangulate the data in 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 Bethan's report with um, with the postgraduate research experience survey, the thing that really jumped out for me was, I think, um, a sort of a failure, a failure of community and culture. So it's not as simple as sort of saying um, there's a bunch of things that PhD students should expect as as standard. Because I think in many, in, in, in a lot of cases, actually, universities have kind of nailed that. It's, it's, so, so that kind of, I guess, slightly, um, you know, what is a reasonable expectation for you as a student of the university, and you know, this should, should be available to you. And it's more about saying how do we cope with the fact that um, doing a PhD is often very challenging. You're, that you're sort of um, you're coming to a, a new kind of identity and new understanding of yourself professionally. That the, the, you are working in a research culture that can often um, have some quite toxic elements in it. Um, and, and, and some of the kind of your understanding of your position in that culture um, can lead you to make assumptions or adopt behaviours that are not kind of healthy for you, and, and to see that as part of, I guess, a, a sort of rite of passage. Um, and how you know, and, and how do you kind of break down some of those um, uh, preconceptions and assumptions and, and patterns that are just so deeply embedded in, in many cases? And I think that you know many university staff would would also kind of comfortably say that this this is very problematic. Um, so I, I suppose my kind of take is is that there's some things that you can absolutely pinpoint, and Bethan's done a brilliant job of pulling out that data that where you can look at it and say that's a problem but it's often not as not as straightforward as saying and we can put a policy in place to solve it it's about bringing the whole community together and saying how do we want to be in a community what does the kind of really great balance between research excellence and productivity and health and well-being and and you know participation and inclusion look like and that's i think a really challenging thing for, for universities to get to grips with ellen did you, did you want to come in on this one yeah i mean i thought it was a really interesting and um important report and i think just as um Debbie and, and Nick have said, I think just like, you know, all culture in many different environments, communities and workplaces needs to be continually examined just as it should in research culture. And it, 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 yeah, it, there's some of those statistics really did stand out to me about how, um, you know, isolating it can be and then, then the potential knock on effect is on, on, on well-being. I mean, the, the, the other point as well around the incredibly pressurized and, and long hours, I was struck of and one of the statistics kind of related to that where nearly, um, three quarters, I think, um, felt that research culture promoted quantity over quality of output as well. And it felt like that might have been leading to the to the pressures um faced. But I think the thing that I think what Nick said, I just returned to this this point around it really highlighted for me this potential to be caught between two kind of caught between being a student or being academic staff and actually are our students, but we recognise that PhD students do a lot of support with things like teaching duties, but they're not paid employees as they are in um some other countries and it, it just made me feel I'm not sure if this is the right parallel to draw or not but with some work I've been doing recently with um, with degree apprentices again different but they are caught between this being a student employee although they're they're paid and have been working and doing some studies with them it's like understanding that identity and being caught between two things can be quite tricky and I've, I think there was also a point made in the report around in terms of policy and changes and what, what need, might be done, there may also be a risk that PhD students are falling between now that we've split out the two ministers, the Minister of Universities and the Minister for Research, uh, Innovation and Science, that could, you know, could be problematic as, as well. But overall, I think it's just really, really important. And I mean, doctoral research and PhD students are vital to the pipeline of, of, of talent expertise in our country. No more so have we seen that than now, the critical role of researchers in, in this pandemic. So need to be, needs to be taken very seriously. 
I, I think that's uh, all correct. Um, and of course, the report shines a spotlight on lots of problems. And the author, um, you know, has first-hand real-life lived experience uh, among her, her and her colleagues um, of this. So, so we should definitely listen very carefully to it. Um, but I, I don't want to lose sight of the of, of the big picture. Just like being an undergraduate can be tough and challenging, but when you emerge from the other end, your life chances are hugely improved. That, that also stands true for postgraduate study, including PhD students. And um, of course, we need our PhD students, uh, as has just been said. Um, and, you know, thinking back to some of the other conversations we've been having about graduate outcomes, um, the outcomes of most PhD students are also fantastic. I, I suppose the conundrum is if the experience of PhD students was better and people felt more welcome and doing their PhD was a little bit easier, we might have even more people going through that experience, making use of the PhD loans that are now available and ultimately, you know, pushing forward the boundaries of, of knowledge for, you know, society's benefit. There's something interesting in there, isn't there, in the report about um, about non-academic career options. And, and, you know, the point I make, lots of people go into their PhD thinking they're going to be an academic, an, an academic and for various reasons, um, you know, for, you know, for a whole constellation of reasons, you know, that, that may not happen. And one of the kind of findings that jumped out of me from the report was um, something like only 54% of, of candidates had sort of said that their supervisor was open to a conversation about careers outside academia. And I think there's a question about perhaps, you know, the, the extent of the responsibility of supervisors to have those conversations. But but also I think, um, and, 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 you know, and, and I think move, moves our foot in this space that, that you know, should absolutely should be encouraged to, uh, un, you know, un, understanding the contribution of PhDs outside academia, um, you know, and why it really, really matters that, you know, why it's really valuable if you've got, if you've got someone with a PhD in your organisation, um, and there's a bit of a kind of uh, stigma, I think, sometimes about uh, in, in, in non-research-focused jobs of people with PhDs because the, the expectation is, is that they will be very narrow, that they'll be very kind of precise and detailed, and they won't necessarily be kind of able for the um, sort of the, the cut and thrust of the you know the, the professional world. And and, it, and it's you know, I hope that, <laughs> that that's not true of of me. Um, it's certainly not true of other people with PhDs that that, that I have known, and and I think the, the data doesn't bear it out. So it's um, you know, I think. More, more of a spotlight needs to be shown on, on those sorts of career trajectories. Yes, and some of the most interesting conversations that Bethan and I had when she was putting the report together were on that point. And, and, and in fact, some of the most interesting conversations I had uh, with David Willett when I was a special advisor were on this point. We used to wrestle with the argument that, you know, is a leaky, what's called the leaky pipeline, where PhD students spin out from academia and go and work elsewhere, a good thing or a bad thing? You know, uh, uh, it's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, there are people who who blame the uh, uh, last financial crisis on on uh, 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 physics PhD students going and working in the city and designing uber complicated products, the financial products that people didn't understand, but which is a negative way of, of looking at it. But but I think in general, society and companies and charities and public sector all benefit. You know, when PhD students, uh, 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 former PhD students, people with doctorates, are, are working in those fields too. So I think we just need more PhD students. That's my conclusion. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Ellen, Nick and Debbie and everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.